We are a Southern Baptist Church uh, here at Parkway Baptist Church, and one of the great things about Southern Baptist life is that we have a state convention, a national convention, and then we have a local association uh, that networks together geographically uh, dozens of churches uh, throughout our county and others. And so um, we are very blessed to have our associational mission strategist named Wes Rankin to be with us today. We try to have him come occasionally to speak just to kind of keep you familiar with him and the good work that he's doing. I tell you, and I tell you, we are very blessed to have him and his wife, Paula. They moved here three years ago, Wes, is that right? Three or two years ago. I'm trying to, trying to hurry up a little bit there, I guess. But uh, he is a wonderful uh, preacher and a great man, a good friend. So please welcome Wes Rankin to the, Wes Rankin to the pulpit today, Wes. And on behalf of Parkway Baptist, we certainly appreciate your service, brother. Yes, sir. Well, good morning, church. How are you? It is wonderful to be with you today. I always love being at this church. I think I've told you that. Uh, I think Shelby was the first one. I, I don't know what he was thinking uh, when we got here uh, February two years ago. The first one that asked me to come and preach and, uh, at your church. And unbelievable, he asked me to come back again after that. So I, I don't know. That's... I don't know what that says about Shelby, but uh, it's always a privilege to be here. Um, it's uh, always one of my favorite churches to preach at. For whatever reason, you all just receive the word really well. And, um, and so I'm just so thankful. Would you go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 46. I'm very thankful for you, for this church. Um, this church has a, a, has a history of having, placing value in the local association. Uh, you believe in the work of the local association. You support the work of the local association, and we're very appreciative of that. Uh, you know, a little bit over a year ago, we kind of revisioned ourselves as an association to try to be more effective, and I, see, I think we're getting the fruit of that. Um, and so it's like churches have to adjust to new realities, so do associations. And so we've tried to do that so that we can actually add value to the local church. That's what we want to do. We're not here for ourselves. We're not here for our own existence. We're here to add value to your ministry, uh, to, the, to the local church. And by God's grace, I believe that we're doing more of that today. So it is summertime. And... I don't know why, but it must be something about my ministry DNA that I love preaching the Psalms during summer. Um, I love the Psalms. And in fact, right now I'm going through a special 30-day reading plan through the Psalms. And I love them because I believe there's times that we kind of instinctively are drawn to the Psalms. Um, because it's an obvious place to go very, during times of difficulty, it's a good place to go, obviously. Time of death or, or, or tragedy or a difficult time in your life. It's a little bit over a year ago that we learned that our, our youngest daughter, uh, who was pregnant with our second grandson, uh, just a routine checkup at the doctor, they, they saw, something, saw something wrong with the baby. And after doing some tests, they diagnosed this baby with a, a skeletal dysplasia disease called osteogenesis, osteogenesis imperfecta, uh, which is, you probably know it more by a disease called brittle bone disease. 
And so this little baby already had several fractures, even in the mama's, mother's womb, uh, to his bones. Uh, would probably never walk, uh, probably not have a normal life expectancy. Our little grandson, Adler Tov Myers, was born on October 11th. And although he was, he was born, he was still born with a disease. God chose not to heal him. But he's a happy little baby. We praise God for that. And our daughter and son-in-law have adjusted well uh, to this new reality. But they, as, as well as this little boy, have many challenges ahead of them. Now, I'll tell you that story to say our family was hit by a trial. A difficult situation had never touched our family before, had never touched our immediate family, had never touched our extended family. We had never had this kind of problem before. We'd never had a, a child in our immediate family or extended families ever born with a disability. We'd never had a, a, a child that had died early in, 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 in life, never had anything like that. This was new for us. And it was during times like this, these that it was nice. It's a tremendous blessing to have the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, you see, you have expressions of joy and celebration, but you also have expressions of anguish, despair, sometimes anger. All the human emotions are there in the Psalms, which is a signal, that God, it's a signal to us that God is wanting and willing to hear whatever is in our hearts and whatever is on our hearts. But you also get in the Psalms a picture of the very heart of God. It's not only about us, but primarily about him, his heart, who he is, what's important to him. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 46, and we're going to talk about a great God for great troubles. That's the title of the message this morning. And you've got to remember that trouble, and you know this very well, but trouble, pain, and sorrow, loss, all these, all these things are part and parcel of living, living in a fallen world. Jesus himself made it very clear to his followers, not just to the world, but to his followers, about the inevitability of trouble. He said in John 16, he says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So that being the case, we, we need to prepare, we need to be prepared for what God in his providence allows or even orchestrates in our life for our own sanctification and for his ultimate glory. And we're going to see some of that in Psalm 46. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text, and then we'll go back to it uh, over again and again as we make our way through this psalm. So Psalm 46, beginning in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her, when morning, dawns, the, the, when morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. 
He utters his voice to earth mounts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather with your people this morning. Thank you for the worship that we've experienced this morning. Lord, we thank you for those who are here that, that led us in worship and how you have used them. But Father, now as we come to this, uh, this point of, of worship through the proclamation of your truth, we pray that you would be honored. We pray, Lord, that you would speak profoundly to each and every one of us. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here who has not made Jesus their refuge, that even now you begin to draw them to yourself. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, Psalm 46 is a very well-known psalm. In fact, Martin Luther, the great German reformer who, who nailed the 95 Thesis to the, to the door, who, who kind of rediscovered the doctrine of justification by faith, he, he focused on this psalm in some very dark days of his life, in fact. In fact, he, he wrote a hymn based on this psalm that you've probably, uh, based upon this psalm and his experience with this psalm and his experience in life, a, a hymn that you've probably sung many times before called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And uh, in fact, Luther had hid out in a fortress a castle named the, the Wartburg Castle uh, deep in the heart of Germany. What happened is friendly forces of Prince Frederick kidnapped him and brought him there for his own safety and his well-being because there was a death sentence on his head. And he had a very difficult time there. He was isolated. He went into times of depression. But he spent his time there translating the New Testament into German. But after a couple of years, he decided that he didn't need the protection of a fortress. And it's out of this psalm that he determined that God was his fortress. It's out of this psalm that he wrote this great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So the psalms, before we get into the text, the psalms weren't written, written in a vacuum. They had a particular setting from which they were penned. And the question is, what is the setting of this psalm? When was Jerusalem the center of worship and under siege by its enemies? Uh, when, which battles were won without a fight? Well, the most obvious time was during the reign of King Hezekiah, which is described in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and in the book of Isaiah. And you, you probably know the story, but let me just recall it before we get into the, the passage this morning. During the times of King Hezekiah, the king of Judah, he was, the, he was the king of the southern kingdom. The nation had been split by this time, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. Hezekiah was the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. But during this time, the mighty empire was the Assyrian empire. 
And Sennacherib was the king of that empire. And Assyria was kind of the big bully nation on the block. And, and Sennacherib is defeating everyone in his path. And, and so this great Assyrian army is making its way down from the north towards the south and pushing towards Judah, pushing towards Jerusalem. And so the Assyrian army moved up to Jerusalem and surrounds the city and gets ready to lay siege to it. And at first, Hezekiah tries to buy Sennacherib off. He tries, to, he tries to give him an enormous tribute. But Sennacherib was not interested. He, 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 he could not, he, in his thinking, he couldn't leave in his wake this, for, this forbidding fortress of Jerusalem as he marched further south for more, more conquest. He, he couldn't leave a king like Hezekiah who wasn't loyal to him in power. And so he wasn't interested. And so he decided that he could not leave Jerusalem unconquered. And so he sent his servants, he sent his servant with a demand that Hezekiah open the gates of Jerusalem and submit to the Assyrian army. Isaiah the prophet said to Hezekiah, don't do it. Basically, don't do it. And so Hezekiah refused to comply to Sennacherib's demand. And so what happened? Well, the Assyrians mocked and they taunted the Jews and Hezekiah, and the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem. Then what happened? God sends down a angel, an angel, to deal with the Assyrian army, one angel, one night, and the mighty Assyrian army was no more. And when the inhabitants of Jerusalem woke up the next morning, there were dead bodies everywhere, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers dead. One angel, one night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers dead. So the God of Jacob was victorious without a weapon being used. And to to celebrate and commemorate this victory, this psalm is penned. And so this psalm has been used through the centuries by both Jews and Christians alike when disasters are to be used when disasters strike or when there's difficulty, when all seems like it's lost. When inevitable trouble comes into the life of a Christ follower, this psalm has been used. And this psalm shows us that God can handle in his own way things that look like disaster to us. So we see in this psalm that although it deals with real human problems and troubles, that the focus of this psalm is the greatness of God Almighty in the midst of life's upheavals and troubles. So with that being said, I want to divide this into three sections and to kind of reveal to us who God is to us in the midst of our troubles and difficulties that inevitably come into our life. The first point is this. God is our sanctuary in the midst of chaos. God is our sanctuary in the midst of chaos. It says in verse 1 through 3 again, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though mountains tremble at its swelling. The theme of these first three verses 
is that of God being our refuge, our sanctuary in the context of chaos. Notice the chaos here. We're talking about creation itself, the earth giving way, the mountains being moved. I mean, two impregnable forces cast into the raging waters of the sea. This is the picture of the world thrown into convulsion. It is a picture of nature coming apart, thrown into chaos. And, and it is even more than just an invading army with a vendetta. This is utter catastrophe. This is kind of like a tsunami, an earthquake, and a hurricane, all wrapped up into one at their most powerful destructive force. And even then, the psalmist says, God is our refuge. There is no need to fear, even if the whole world comes apart at the seams. God is our refuge. Even in the world, even in a world where there is no safe place, no place secure, the psalmist says, if you know God, then it doesn't matter if the whole world give away, you have a refuge, you have a sanctuary to help you in your times of trouble. Now, the psalmist here is using language from the natural world, obviously, that speaks more than just mountains and the earth giving way. He's referring to the chaos of our lives. He's referring to the chaos of our communities. He's talking about the chaos of our, our country, the chaos of our world. And you know, chaos greets us every day. We look at our world, and, and we see it in turmoil. We see the political developments here in the United States in continued chaos conflict and confusion with division growing wider between American people. We see the Ukraine, thousands of people dead, thousands of families displaced, whole towns and villages obliterated as a result of a brutal and deadly invasion by Russia. And now we see a rebellion even inside Russia. What is all that chaos? We look at the South America and Central America, and we see the political instability and the violence brought on by the drug lords and thousands trying to escape by making the dangerous and many times futile trip to the United States. What, what's going on? A region in chaos. I'm so thankful that we don't have any chaos here. I mean, complete harmony. I mean, Washington, D.C. is just working perfectly. No chaos. I hope you hear the sarcasm. And then there is just a chaos of our everyday lives. Everyday upheavals, both small and great. From minor illnesses to cancer, from minor conflict to divorce, from financial belt tightening to bankruptcy, from minor setbacks to lost dreams. I mean, we live and breathe in a world of chaos. And what we normally do is that we try with all our strength and so-called genius to control our chaos. I mean, we think, I can protect myself from this. I can manage the chaos. I think I can escape the chaos. It would be like in the midst of a massive earthquake, me thinking, you know, I can manage this earthquake. I think I can stop the mountain from being thrown into the sea. You say, well, that's crazy. Well, yes, it is, but it's no more crazy than you and I thinking that we can manage by our, by our own sovereign control the troubles and the chaos that come into our lives. 
God says, you're going to have chaos. You are, a fallen, you are fallen creatures living in a fallen world, but your only hope in the midst of the upheavals of this life is to run to me and find your refuge and your sanctuary in me and find that, that in the midst of your chaos, I am your ever-present help. And so, God is our sanctuary in the midst of chaos. But the second thing I want you to see here, the psalmist goes on to explain, this is so good, he goes on to explain how this sanctuary idea becomes real to us. Because you see, you've got this objective reality that God is our sanctuary, but how does that become a subjective experience for us? How does that become real? He, how does God make it real to us? And that's the second point. God is our strength in the midst of conflict. Look, at there, look there in verse 4 through 7. He says, there is a river whose stream, streams make glad the city of God, a holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth, earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So we go from a raging sea to a peaceful river. Now, if you read this, you would think the city of Jerusalem would have this nice flowing stream running down the middle of it, but that was not the truth. It wasn't the case. You see, the city of Jerusalem was in the arid Judean uh, mountains, highlands. It was, it was placed upon top of two hills, and there was no water supply within the city. There were no streams within the walls of Jerusalem. In fact, it was a great military vulnerability uh, because you had to go outside the city walls to the Gihon Spring in order to bring water back into the city. As King Hezekiah had an ingenious plan, he put some engineers to, 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 the, to the task of digging a tunnel from the Gihon Spring that would come inside to the city, uh, to the city of Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam. And so that water could be there and that they would have water that would supply life. And so Hezekiah knew, he knew, that if this dreadful Assyrian army siege came, that they would be, there would be a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Because now the water came within the city. And Hezekiah knew that without the hidden river inside, the city would have fallen, not from the strength from the outside, but weakness from within, you see. It's interesting that hundreds of years later, later Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, what would happen is the priests would take bowls of water from the Pool of Siloam. Remember, the Pool of Siloam is where the, where, the, where, where the streams from outside would come in within the city and go to the Pool of Siloam. And so the, the priests would take the bowls of water from the Pool of Siloam and carry them through the city streets and deposit the water at the temple. temple. It was a symbol of life of God giving life to his people. And you remember, John tells us in the seventh chapter of John that on the last day of the feast, the great day, and we're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, 
that Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. John goes on to tell us that Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit. He says right after that in verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's the point. What gives us strength? To stand in the midst of conflict and chaos, it's, it's not our theological knowledge, as important as that is. Our biblical knowledge, our theological knowledge is absolutely important. But you know what? There's a lot of people, unfortunately, that have great biblical knowledge. They're Bible-believing conservative Christians, have great theological knowledge, but their orthodoxy, their biblical knowledge is dead. We call it dry or dead orthodoxy because it's not enlivened by the Spirit. What's going to give us the strength to be able to stand in the midst of conflict and chaos? It's not our theological knowledge. It's not our accumulated works in church, as important as those things may be. It's not the strength of our will or our personality. The only way we're going to be able to stand is through the indwelling Holy Spirit, you see. The river whose streams make glad the city of God. Notice again what it says there. It says, God is in the midst of her she shall not be moved. God's river is there in the city, but God himself is there in the city, you see. And at this time, at this time, what this meant is don't be overly confident about the walls circling the city because sometimes those, wall, those walls don't work. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. In fact, walls don't usually work for a long time. I mean, the Berlin Wall finally fell, right? The Great Wall of China didn't work very long. The enemy on the outside gave a bribe to the people on the inside, and they opened the gate and let the enemy in. Walls don't normally work. And, and what I see in Christians' lives too many times is they, many Christians try to live their lives this way. They, they put up walls of rules and legalism and regulations. They have a set of rules and laws they try to live by and say, if I do these things, if I just live a moral life, if, if I just keep these rules, then I'll be able to handle whatever conflict, whatever chaos, whatever trouble that will come into my life. If I do these things, if I follow these rules, then bad things won't happen to me. And that's just not true. Walls don't work. But what verse 5 suggests is that, is that it's God himself being in a city that works. It is the incomparable, incomprehensible, overwhelming power and presence of God that works. We um, were missionaries in Brazil with the IMB for a number of years. And while we were living there, going to language school before we were assigned to Sao Paulo, where we would ultimately uh, live, we were in language school, and, and most of the homes in, in Brazil are surrounded by walls, and our home was surrounded by a wall. 
And so we lived in this community, and we, it was a pretty decent community, but adjacent to our community was a favela, a slum. And then we had this girl, this little girl that lived right on the edge of that community, like in between those two communities, and she would have a lot of friends from the favela, but she also came and befriended our girls, and our girls were like three and five at this time. So we wanted them to learn the language and get to know the culture. And so we, we invited her into our home and she got to know the layout of our home. She got to know our golden retriever, uh, who we had taken with us to Brazil. And, uh, and, but she ran around with all these favela kids. And so one time I was out of town with some other missionaries and we were up in, in Salvador doing evangelism and our wives and, and all the missionary wives and children stayed at home and they were all away from their homes out doing something in the park or whatever with the kids. And so Paula and our girls were gone from the house. And while they were gone, uh, this little girl and her friends uh, come to our house and they scale the wall and they go to the back. The front of our house had bars over the windows, but the back of our house, one of the bathroom windows didn't have a bar, didn't have bars. It was a small little window. It was one of those louver windows. And they took one of the little kids and they greased him up really well, and they slid him in between a six-inch louver window. And he went into the house and he opened the door from the inside and they came in and they had a ball. They went to town. Now, what did our golden retriever do? Obviously nothing. <laughs> Other than probably licked them. Now, the point is, these little burglars, they said, let's rob this house because we're not overly concerned what's on the inside. Now, if we had a Doberman or something like that, It'd probably been a different story, right? But we happen to have one of the most docile, gentle dogs in the world, a golden retriever. Point is, when the enemies of our souls, when the enemies of our church start coming our way, when heartache and disaster strikes, it's not enough to say, you know, I've got some really good walls. I mean, I, I've got a set of rules I try to keep. I, I, I try to live the good Christian life. We've got some really good programs in our church. And we've got new facilities going up. All those things are good and great. We're a Bible-believing conservative church. That's good. It's wonderful. But we may say, that's going to keep us safe. But listen, there has to be somebody living in this house or living in our lives or living in this church that is much more powerful than any small-mindedness, any temptation, any enemy that can come at us or at the church. There has to be the, the God, of, the God of, of Scripture, the God of Jacob, the God of God Almighty has to be, has to be at the very center of our lives. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. One last point as we close with this. The third thing that we see here is that God is our sovereign in the midst of our concern. In verse 8 through 11, it says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, that he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You see, verses 8 through 11 speaks of God's exalted position. 
his control, his sovereignty in the midst of concern. There's three aspects of his sovereignty that we see here. First of all, he is sovereign over the kingdoms of man. He says, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and the spear. He burns chariots with fire. The works of the Lord here, basically that can be better translated the judgments of the Lord. And, and, and it basically, it's to behold the judgments of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. You see, your security and my security is not going to be in how long your empire lasts or how long the structures of your, your life last or even how long your marriage or your job lasts. That's not your security. The Assyrian Empire, empire came and went. The Babylonian Empire came and went. The Grecian Empire with Alexander the Great came and went. The Roman Empire rose and fell. China Dynasty Empire of China, same thing. Aztecs, the Huns, the Vikings, the British Empire, the, the Third Reich, the Soviet Union. They all rose, they all fell. And the psalmist is saying, take a look around, folks. Just take a look. There is no structure that human beings have erected, no organization, no empire that has lasted. It's only God that lasts. And there will come a time when God will call all empires finished. He will make all war cease. When he breaks the bow and he shatters a spear and, and when he burns the chariots with fire. There's going to time, come a time when God says, enough of this, it's over. Because you see, the judgments of God means all Cases are closed. All arguments are over. No more human conflict. No more divorce court. No more war. Why? Because God's judgment has come. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. You see, God's judgment brings comfort. Should be bringing comfort to his people. I'm telling you, the more I live in this life, the more I live in this world and see all its injustice, and the, and, the, and, the, and the sin and inequity and all these things, the more I'm saying, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. His judgment says, I'm going to make everything right. I'm not going to allow in the end injustice and evil to win. That's what we've got to look forward to. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, as Christians, we probably we go to two opposite poles. One pole is like, I'm going to try to make this world utopia. I'm going to try to erase all injustice, all sin, all, all war. I'm going to try to make this life utopia. Well, that's never going to happen. And, what, and that, le that will lead to deep despair. The other end is, this world's just a bunch of junk, and, um, and I'm just going to wait till the, I go to heaven. And I'm not going to have any, I mean, just, you know, just allow this world just to burn. And that's not the answer either. Uh, we are to be here. We are to be present. We are to occupy till he comes. We're not to try to make this world a utopia, but we are, as, as Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And that doesn't mean this peace between nations. That means that we try, by God's grace, with the gospel at the very center, try to do justice while we're here on this earth. Second thing here as we're getting ready to close, he is sovereign over the activities of man. Notice what it says, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Now we, we hear that verse and normally what we think is this, 
it means, it, we think it means this. You've got to be real quiet. You've got to be silent. And when you're real quiet in a meditative kind of way, then you hear God's still small voice. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not really what this verse is saying. This verse doesn't mean that. It means, it, it literally means cease and desist. That's what, that's what it means. It's a word that could be used to, uh, of stopping quarreling children or breaking up a fight in the schoolyard. Or, uh, as one commentator said, it's equivalent to the military counterpart of attention. It's like when, when a, a sergeant would walk into the barracks and he would say to the troops, attention, what are they going to do? They're going to stop what they're doing. All the activity, they're going to stop and they're going to stand at attention. He is saying, stop your fighting, stop your struggles, stop all your busy religious activities, cease and desist, and know that I am God. Because as long as we are fighting and struggling and quarreling, as long as we are all involved in the frantic activities of our lives, you will not know, he says, you will not know that I am God. You will, not experience, you will not experience me acting for you. And that's what he's saying to King Hezekiah. God was saying to him in so many words, he says, Hezekiah, be still. Stop fretting. Don't try to be me. Know that I will be God for you. Know that I will fight the battle for you. Lastly, he is sovereign over the wishes of man. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. King Sennacherib of the Assyrian Empire thought he was sovereign. He thought he was sovereign over the earth. He, brought, he thought he was exalted among the nations, but God showed that he will usurp himself and that he will be exalted, that God will be exalted amongst the nations. And God showed Sennacherib this, that Sennacherib was not sovereign because Sennacherib would escape. He would go back home and later be assassinated by his two sons. God says, don't fool with me because I will put down anyone and everyone who tries to exalt themselves because I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You see, when trouble comes into our lives, we often make the mistake of trying to be the sovereign. Putting ourselves in a position of thinking that we can control what is happening. And God, who is jealous for his own glory, for his own sovereignty, will often orchestrate events such that, such that we fall flat on our face, which I have many times. And he shows himself to be king, and he says, in a sense, I will be exalted. I am God, and you are not. As we close, and I, I get ready to turn it over to your pastor, just a couple questions, or some questions to ponder about this. I, I think the first question I would ask all of us this morning is, how is your faith working? When the earth gives way and when the mountains move, you know, when the report of cancer comes from the doctor, when the financial position you're in begins to deteriorate, when the enemy of your soul surrounds you, threatening your doom, how is it when there is tremendous 
trouble. How does your faith work for you then? Do you find him to be your safe place? Do you find him to be your refuge, your sanctuary at those times? Do you find him to be the ever-present help in times of trouble? Do you find the reality of the Holy Spirit like a free-flowing stream of water strengthening you and sustaining you during those times? When the earth gives way and the mountains move, are you settled enough to know that he is God in those moments? Is he exalted in your life in the midst of your troubles? So how is your faith working for you this morning? Lastly, and most importantly, do you have a refuge? Do you actually have a refuge? You see, there is no security in this world. There is absolutely none. No matter how many walls you may erect, no matter how many structures you build, none of them are going to last none of them will give you security. There is only one refuge, and Jesus is that refuge. He's the only safe place. He is the mighty fortress, you see. The question is, do you know him? Do you have him? Have you surrendered to him? Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, Lord. What comfort. What comfort and what practical advice do you give us, Lord? It's tremendous. Lord, I pray for every person who is here, for myself included. I pray that we would ask ourselves this morning, is our faith working? Are we filled with peace like a river or are we filled with anxiety and fear and Lord I pray that for each one of us who, who have to answer that maybe with anxiety and fear Lord that we would come afresh and anew to you and say Lord I'm looking to you I'm trusting you as my sanctuary my, my refuge Lord, I pray for that individual or those individuals here this morning who have not made Jesus their refuge. And Lord, that you would begin to draw them to yourself. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Shelby.